0: Hello and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast, where we try to take a look under the bonnet of the market with a leading asset allocator. I'm David Thorpe, Contributing Editor at Asset Allocator. Joining me today is Will Thompson, Multi-Asset Portfolio Manager at Pacific Asset Management. Thanks for joining me today, Will. Um, How do you think about, I suppose, positioning the equity bit of multi-asset portfolios for a world of higher inflation, higher interest rates and generally higher volatility. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you firstly for having me. I really appreciate it. I think the first thing I'd say is, you know, as you mentioned, inflation and interest rates this year have been intrinsically linked. We've seen inflationary pressures... Broaden across the US. So they started really with transitory problems. Um, They've been broadening into the services part of inflation. So that's things like rents. And that's really what's causing the Fed to hike interest rates more and more aggressively, you know, starting with 25 basis points, moving to 50 basis point increments, then 75. So, you know, in terms of the equity market focus for us, the first thing we've done this year is be very defensive. You know, structurally, we can do something from an asset allocation perspective. We can be very underweight equities, which is one of the things we've done very clearly. But one of the anomalous things we noticed in maybe 2019 and 2020, and arguably into 2021, as the Fed was late to react to this inflationary pressure, was that the gap between value stocks and growth stocks had reached extreme levels. So when we look at that spread between the cheapest parts of the market and the most expensive parts of the market, Value was vastly underpriced versus growth and value is less sensitive to interest rates. You know, uh, so for us, the way we think about our allocation is defensively tilted, underweight equities, but also invested in value stocks. And then, you know, we take some historical analogues. We look at the track record of value during inflationary periods. It has much shorter duration. And during periods of inflation, value tends to outperform the broader markets. That's one of our areas of focus we're looking at oh, we're looking at value from the perspective of you know each sector we're not just investing in a single sector like energy stocks we look at sector neutral value we call it and we think that's a very interesting strategy at this point
0: thank you and almost as if we'd planned it that leads into the the next question really the big debate in markets right now is whether to tilt portfolios to protect against inflation or recession it's kind of hard to find an asset that does that does both you've mentioned the the value stocks component that's very much as you mentioned seen as an an inflation uh, protector but many value stocks are economically uh, sensitive H- how do you think about that balance between inflation and recession in 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 portfolios i think that's an excellent question i think that's the question that everyone sort of should be asking
1: themselves at this point in the economic cycle what the Fed has told us, what Jay Powell has told us really is that they're solely focused on this inflationary fight. And, you know, Jackson Hole, the speech at Jackson Hole was very important because he mentioned some pain economically that the U S will feel. And, and and really our view there is that the Fed won't move until the labor market starts to loosen, having been incredibly tight for most of this year. and, Most of the time, when unemployment moves by around half a percent due to interest rate rises, we get a recession. You know, are we likely to get a soft landing? Well, three quarters of the time in Fed tightening cycles, we get a recession. Only one quarter of the time we get a soft landing. So we think positioning for recession is very, very important. You know, I mentioned value stocks earlier. Some of the other equity holdings we have are dividend aristocrats. So much more income focused, much more high quality focused better balance sheets, we'd argue, than the rest of the market, and not trading at a valuation premium. So that for us is an interesting uh, sort of uh, less um, sensitive to recession type of strategy. you know. But the other things we're looking at for this recessionary environment ultimately is slightly higher cash levels in portfolios. You know, We've been pretty overweight cash, but also diversification through... Alternative asset classes through diversifying assets, so strategies that aren't necessarily as directional. You know, one of the problems we've had this year for multi-asset investors is bonds are not acting as a diversifier anymore. Being long only, being directional, is very difficult when you have equities and bonds going down at the same time, that positive correlation. So what we really need to do as multi-asset investors is focus on those alternative strategies. And that has been probably our biggest tactical overweight, if you like. That's been really
0: helping us out during these periods of, of market volatility. Thank you. And so what does your bond what does your bond allocations look like right now, both in terms of I suppose the, the quantum, you know, overweight or underweight relative to market, but also underneath the bonus, what bonds do you have?
1: Yeah, I think if I could take the 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 second part of that question first. Firstly, in terms of the way we're allocated, we have no exposure to high yield bonds. So typically we would have an exposure to high yield bonds and we have very little exposure to emerging market debt. These are both asset classes that we think have a useful place in portfolios at different stages of the economic cycle. But when we look at the spreads of something like US high yield bonds over what you get from treasuries, for example, we don't think they're accurately pricing recessionary risks. So for us, the inherent risks in high yields don't make them particularly attractive for us as we enter what we see as a pretty late stage in this economic cycle. So, you know, we do have some exposure to investment-grade credit, but really we're in short-dated fixed income. We're very underweight fixed income as well, um, but we're in shorter-dated fixed income. That's been much of the case all year. So, you know, we started the year probably at our maximum underweight fixed income. But with all of that said, you know, in terms of government bonds, as we reach a stage where... The growth, the forward-looking growth expectations are starting to slow down. You know, we're seeing that in PMI data, Mm -hmm. particularly in Europe, but globally. We're seeing it in OECD, composite leading indicator data. You know, do bonds stop essentially the relentless sell-off that we've seen all year? Um, And that is possible. So we are starting to think about adding to bond exposures as we reach perhaps this tipping point where the world's central banks, you know, essentially realise that they are. They've sort of reached the peak of the inflation fight, but they're also facing a growth fight.
0: Sure. Uh, you mentioned um, government bonds there, and apart from you know price movements, many developed market government bonds have been far more volatile than than perhaps investors are used to. Does that if that volatility is now entrenched or baked in? does it change long-term the role that government bonds play in in portfolios? You know, I, I'm around so long, I remember when government bonds were almost yielding negative or, or nothing. I say so long, that was probably last year. But anyway, um, in that context... Allocators used to say to me, oh, I know they're yielding nothing. I know they're expensive, but they're ballast in portfolios and other things are more volatile and they sit there. But they're not really ballast if they're going to be that volatile. So is there a longer term conversation to be had about the role of these things?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if we go back in time and we look at previous recessionary periods, previous equity sell off periods, bonds were a viable uh, alternative to equities during those market events. So in 2000, you know, when we had the the first tech bubble and the sell-off, real yields were at something like 4%. So you were getting 4% above inflation to invest in uh, inflation-linked fixed income for example and over the past 22 years something like that that has trended down to in 2021 minus 1 as you say, you know, valuations for fixed income were incredibly unattractive, but we've retraced 200 basis points plus of that move in nine months. So the volatility has been absolutely extreme. That's what's led to these problems in pricing all sorts of assets. You know, most assets are priced off the real yield rate of fixed income. You know, when you think about long dated cash flows from infrastructure or growth stocks or any of these sort of financial assets that we associate ourselves with, you know, the problem of the volatility in the bond market can't be understated. For us... We think this should normalise over time. We think that what we will see in the medium term, potentially as growth starts to slow, is some of these inflationary numbers tend to trend down. We think fixed income volatility should start to normalise slightly, and we still think they're viable for portfolios. But when we're building portfolios, we're building to a risk target. And we have to think about uh, the long-term volatility of that risk target, but also what's happening in the short term. And, you know, I, I think it's a very valid point. And that is why we diversify away from fixed income into some of these other asset classes at this point in the cycle.
0: Thank you. And given that government bond yields have uh, risen so so stoutly and are now, you know, you can, you know, even at relatively at the short end of the curve, you can get whatever, 3 4% in developed markets. Are they starting to become more attractive?
1: Yeah, I think, having entered this year essentially at our largest underweight in fixed income you know we've had in our history, I think, we have to appreciate that the playing field shifted slightly, as you say, you know the yields achievable in the one to five year space are something around the four to five percent range you know that is much more attractive than where we were. This normalization of policy has made fixed income marginally more attractive or 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 actually more than marginally more attractive and as a result of that, we are starting to shift some of that underweight into into fixed income, but it's incremental, you know. We have to move at the same pace. We're seeing a very resilient Fed fighting this inflationary impulse. We're still seeing inflation surprises in the US. So we think this move is
0: is slow, but has to happen, if you see what I mean. Thank you. Um and you mentioned the, the underweight to fixed income generally. And um, What have you owned instead of fixed income? What has been doing the, the job of fixed income in, in portfolios? So that's been really important to us. And we
1: really divide the world of things that aren't fixed income and equities simply into two buckets. We call them alternatives, which are clearly much more directional. And then we have things like diversifying assets, which, which we think is a sort of much less directional. So... In alternatives, at the start of the year, we had exposure to commodities, we had exposure to gold. And in fact, now we don't have either of those things, but they were very helpful at the start of the year. Commodities are really interesting. There's a structural undersupply, we would argue, of a lot of key commodities. You, know, you think about something like copper, um, which clearly, you know, you can't get out the ground quick enough when we're moving to electrification, a more sustainable s- structure, all of those kind of things. And commodity demand was increasing um, now, subsequently, obviously, as I've spoken about, global growth has slowed down, so commodity demand has decreased. China's slowdown has been a real problem for commodities, so we have cut that exposure, but that was that was helpful. And the same with gold. You know, you think of gold as typically just an inflation hedge, but really, actually, it's more linked to to the real yields I was talking about earlier. So again, something useful at the start of the year that we've we've slightly reduced, and one final thing we had in our alternatives bucket which i think is quite interesting still is exposure to uk commercial property through closed-end funds okay now these do act much more like a long-dated bond proxy but we don't own them in an open-end structure we don't think physical property should really ever be put in an Mm open-end structure it has the problems of gating the funds tend to close as we've Mm -hmm. seen in the last few weeks but in closed-end space What we can see in terms of the discount to net asset value of some of these structures is in the realm of 50%. Mm -hmm. You know, that is implying to us the UK slowdown of 2008 plus proportion. So it's, it's, it's an interesting space. It's an alternative, but it definitely has direction. So that's been helpful, you know, or all of those asset classes have been helpful to us this year. And then the other thing I think that's been really, really helpful is diversifying assets. And we classify these as having little to no correlation to equities and bonds. So some of those structures have been risk premium strategies we run internally. So that's things like going long, cheap currencies and short, expensive currencies or long currency momentum and short currencies with poor momentum. And for us, those strategies have done really, really well. Central banks have sort of let the genie out the bottle. We've got FX volatility back. We've got rates volatility back. And so some of these quantitative strategies tend to do really, really well. The Other things that have been helpful have been trend following or positions that we maybe have in macro strategies or FX strategies. So, you know, again, we have some directional positions in foreign exchange because bonds for the last six months have not been offering us that diversification benefit. So sort of all these strategies in a bucket don't look like equities and bonds, don't correlate to equities and bonds but offer the opportunity for positive returns in an environment where other mark, uh, uh, you know, general financial markets are doing very poorly. That for us is a
0: is a really useful thing to have in this environment. Thank you. And you mentioned on the, the UK REITs, and I suppose one can crudely divide those into into two. You have the very generalist, probably quite long established uh, REITs that are out there, and then you have maybe slightly more niche things that do warehouses, supermarkets, et cetera, et cetera. And... Is, is that how you think about them and wh- where do you have your, your allocations?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So we have allocations to the generalist REITs. So at the start of this year, there's a really interesting, I think, uh, difference between those specialist REITs. So you think about some of the logistics REITs, for example, they were trading at a 20 or 30% premium to NAV. And when you look at the generalist REITs they're made up of 60 to 70% logistics exposure warehouse exposure okay. and yet they're trading at a 25% discount to net asset value mm-hmm. and for us you know, we think that discount impact can be really powerful in the closed end space if you buy attractive assets at a discount to their net asset value you know that can be a potent combination and you know during the most recent market turbulence particularly what we saw in gilt markets after the mini budget Clearly, there's been a pretty big structural sell-off across the closed-end fund space. But I think the problems of the premiums worsened
0: some of that for those specialist REITs. Okay, thank you for that, Will Thompson, Multi-Asset Portfolio Manager at Pacific Asset Management. And thanks to all of you for listening. Do remember to tune in to the next edition of the Asset Allocator podcast.